The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, I'm glad to be with you guys today. Uh, it's exciting to come and worship and just hear people lifting up their voices. It's our Savior. Uh, I just want to give a special welcome. I didn't know they were here the last service, but I guess it was, it was so good they stayed for a second one. My parents are here. Uh, today, so uh, where are you at? I don't, I don't know. You guys moved where you were. Oh, there they are. Go ahead and stand. Absolutely. They uh, they need a hand for putting up with me. Oh man, especially my mom. I'm so sorry. We're excited here to be back in our Come and See series. Uh, it's been about three weeks uh, since we got into this series in the Book of John. So we're going to be in the Book of John, chapter six starting in verse 22. And uh, just to refresh your memory, since it's been a little while, uh, last time we met on this topic, uh, Pastor Gary uh, spoke and he shared about the feeding of the 5,000, which ended up being a multitude, uh, 5,000 plus women and children. Uh, he talked about how God taught the disciples through that whole situation. And then uh, he, Jesus goes off to the mountains to pray and to be with his father. And then also in that lesson, we heard how uh, the disciples, they go off in the boat, they experience this huge storm, freak out, just like I freak out, uh, not knowing what's going to happen, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And again, he teaches them a valuable lesson of trusting in the Savior. So that's where we pick up our story today. And uh, so to, to give you a little bit of the setting, I'd like you to imagine with me Maybe something absolutely amazing that has happened to you. Like maybe something leading up uh, to a series of events. Maybe God just blessed you. Uh, maybe you're a college student and you just, things really, went really well for a semester. And you just don't want that semester to end. Or maybe you went on a trip and you experienced time and time again some amazing things that you saw. Maybe in creation or things like that. And you're just like, I don't want this to end. I want it to keep going. I want, I want things just to keep going how they are and... And never, you know, never end. And that's kind of how I pictured uh, this illustration going, where I experienced something recently with my family uh, that I didn't want to end. It started off, you know, really cool, real hopeful, and then it continued on, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. What's happening here? And I think I got a few pictures to illustrate this deep spiritual truth. Uh, so in the middle is... My two daughters were getting ready for the big game. And if you didn't know, I'm a huge Eagles fan being from Philadelphia. Sorry about that. You guys will be okay without Dez, though. <clears throat> so, um, sorry, I didn't say that. Um, actually, you will probably be better. Uh, so, we're getting excited for the Super Bowl. And this, the middle picture is us getting excited. I got my old school Reggie White jersey on. We're hopeful. Even back in the playoffs leading up, we're like, I can't believe we're still winning. We have a backup quarterback. What is going on here? And so we're just riding the train. My girls, uh, you know, my wife likes to say I'm, I'm a, a manipulative, you know, like a brainwasher because uh, my kids love Philly sports. But honestly, they just love it. I don't know why, but they just do. But so during the game, we had some situations where, you know, the game's progressing and we're getting excited because things are happening. My youngest daughter, she drew a picture of Tom Brady with literal uh, sticks of butter for his hands. Uh, so she shares my love for sarcasm and making fun of people. Uh, and then uh, uh, 
my, my other daughter, uh, my older daughter, she reminded me she drew this picture of six fingers on there because Brady wasn't getting his sixth ring. So we just wanted to make sure everybody knew that. Uh, so this whole thing leading up to the Eagles Super Bowl win, which I've been reminded a million times here in Texas that we didn't have one, uh, finally it happened. But you, you didn't want that to end. You wanted that to continue. I mean, my my daughter, Sydney, she kicked the plant over in the middle of the living room. I mean, she's so excited. And, and then Kendall, she's got pots and pans in the cul-de-sac smashing them together because they won. You should, I mean, I think you saw some of what they were doing in Philadelphia. Uh, it was a little crazy. That's why they greased the poles and things like that uh, because we love to celebrate. But this is what I'm picturing the crowd doing when they see Jesus. They see, they've heard about him turning water into wine. They've heard about him and maybe seen him give a, a blind man sight and someone who can't walk is able to walk again and this crowd continues to grow. And they're like, this is amazing. We don't want this to end. We want to see that. And I mean, he's like a rock star. I mean, they're just following him around and you can see it. I'm not making this stuff up. You can see it in John 6, 22. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks, referring to the miracle. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here they are looking for Jesus, where'd he go? I know he went away for to the mountains, but now we don't see him. And the disciples got in a boat. We saw them get in a boat, but Jesus didn't get in the boat. Where is he? And so they're wondering where he is. And then uh, I guess they got tipped off. The disciples got, got in a boat and, and took off. So what do they do? They grab some boats and they hop in boats and they go to find Jesus. So there's this feeling of anticipation. Maybe they were looking for uh, hope or, or healing or, or maybe just to see the man who could alter the physical universe. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be following this dude, right? Some amazing things that you've seen and that you've heard about. You know, when you hear stories, it's almost even better. You hear them and sometimes people even exaggerate and you're like, I got to see this. So they get in their boats and they go on the other side of the sea and they find Jesus in Capernaum in the synagogue, and it's around the time of Passover. So they're all focused on the physical. They're all focused on bread, right? They're all focused on maybe they heard that Jesus calmed the storm possibly or, or other things that Jesus had done. They're focused on here. And Jesus wants to shift their focus. He wants to shift their focus to something else. So look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set a seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So here they are, their Jewish mindset in the Passover, what should we do? Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said, Therefore, well, what then do you do before, uh, for a sign that we may see 
and believe you, not that he didn't do anything already, right? Uh, well, do you remember what I just did? Uh, what work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. So here they are finding Jesus in the synagogue. And they're finding him there and they experience this situation where here he is and they ask him a question. Hey, where'd you go? How'd you get here? It's call him rabbi, teacher. How did you get here? And he's, he doesn't spend any time on that at all. You notice that? Jesus takes this question that's up here and he totally dismisses it. Now, if it's me, again, a human being, sinful, prideful, I'd be like, you should have seen how I got here, <laughs> right? Uh, walked on water, you know, hung out with the disciples for a little bit, and I'm here. But no, he dismisses that physical surface level and he goes deeper. He says, uh, oh, they, they say, well, Rabbi, how'd you get here? But instead he... He drives it somewhere deeper. Jesus knows where they are, and he disregards their surface question to get to the real point. So let's take a second here and dive deeper into the setting. Consider this, maybe imagining yourself as a Jew during Passover. This is like the Super Bowl for Jews, you know. This is like big deal, the Passover. This is impressive stuff, you know, that you remember what God did. He passed over and, and saw the blood on the doorpost and, and the, the people were free from the oppression that they faced for so long. And so here it is in Passover. If you were a Jew living in this community, you would have been studying Scripture pertaining to the departure of your people from Egypt. No doubt you would have thoughts of, even thoughts of manna on your mind as Jesus provided bread for the multitude that you just saw. And you have manna on your mind, and you can see that they had manna on their mind, right? In verse 31. So it's important for us to get that, that the Jews had a fascination with manna. They had, even in their writings, there's a, a, a Jewish writer, a commentary that talks about how the Jews were looking forward to a second manna. A second dropping of manna, uh, there's a, a commentary, Midrash Rabbah, that says, as the first Redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend. So here Jesus is in the first part of this chapter, fulfilling this prophecy of the Messiah providing manna. So after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd was looking at Jesus as useful. What can this dude do for me? I just saw, I know these prophecies about manna. I just saw him gave manna, bread, to thousands of people. Maybe he really is the Messiah. What can he do for me? And before we rush to judgment on these people, we might want to sit and judge ourselves and confess that we do this to Jesus. That we look at Jesus and say, what can he do for me? We follow the Savior to experience the blessings that can come from that. 
Maybe we believe a false gospel that says, if I come to Jesus, he can make me clean and make my life better and maybe give me money or give me stuff or give me success or heal that relationship. He can do all those things. But these people, that's what they were seeing him as was the source of blessing here on the physical. So they weren't getting it, just like we wouldn't get it either. As he taught, Jesus tried to lift their thoughts from a simply material understanding of his miracle to something greater. I want you to get this. Your perceived need is not your actual need. Your perceived need is not your actual need. The need that kind of bubbles up to the surface and is here is always representing something deeper. It's always representing something deeper for us. So at the end of this section... He tries to explain he's the bread of God come down from heaven, but the audience doesn't get it because you see in this verse in verse 34, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. So, hey, if you're the bread, give me more. It's kind of like Peter fast forward to when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Jesus washes Peter's feet and, and Peter's feet, and Peter's like, what are you doing? And he's like, hey, you want a part of me? You've got to let me wash your feet. And then Peter's like, well, if that's the case... Wash my whole body then, right? So here's the people saying, well, if you're the bread of life, keep it coming. Give me a buffet. (laughs) Whatever this bread is, I want it because there's healing happening here. There's fish turning into more fish over here. There's bread multiplying with extras left over. Give me more. Give me more. And they're still on the physical. So in verse 35, we see Jesus makes a bold claim. You know, sometimes we just have things that need to be made plain to us, right? Sometimes people are talking up here, and I experience that a lot. You know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so sometimes I experience it where I need people to put it plainly. Just speak plainly. That's a, I love growing up in the Northeast that way because they just people just tell you how they feel. Love it or not, it happens, and you deal with it. And here's Jesus. Finally, he's like, all right, you don't get it? Here we go. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Well, there you go. If it wasn't plain before, here it is. I am the bread of life. Kind of reminds us back in John 4 of the Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and he says what? What does he say to her? I'm the living water. You drink from this and you will never be thirsty again. And here he is in verse 35 saying, if you hunger, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. So he ties these two together, this water and this bread. And he says, it's me, it's me, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the bread of life. Now, this is one of many I am statements Jesus makes throughout John's gospel. He calls himself the living water, but then he says, I'm the bread of life in 6, light of the world in chapter 8. Gate for the sheep in chapter 10. Good shepherd in chapter 10. I'm the resurrection and life in chapter 11. I'm the way, the truth, and the life in 14. The true vine in uh, chapter 15. And you notice in all these statements, again, us being good Jews, imagining this and picturing this, these are all Jewish statements. These are all statements that you would have grown up hearing taught to you and burned in your brain in the idea of the good shepherd. The idea of uh, this picture that we see of these different things that he was, the, the vine, 
And all these word pictures, and what Jesus does is he takes all these pictures and redirects their thoughts back to himself. That is bold. You talk about going into a Jewish synagogue and saying, I'm the bread. I am the life. I'm the vine. I'm the good shepherd. What? What? What are you, are you really claiming all this stuff? The boldness that it took to sit there or stand there and say, this is me. I'm the fulfillment of all these things you've learned over your life. I'm the fulfillment. So here we are in, Jesus, uh, in, in verse 40, and he illustrates to them one of three times that he states very clearly how we come to God. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Here he goes saying, this is no mystery. The way you come to me, the way you come to the Father is by the Father's will drawing you. The Jews, they were unsettled by this, by his bold claim. Look at verse 41. The Jews therefore grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Here they are. I'm unsettled here. You know, maybe if you're a Jew as well, maybe you also picture something that you know in history and you know from the tabernacle. There was a, 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 an element of the tabernacle called the table of showbread. And if you pictured that and saw the table of showbread, you would see 12 cakes representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And what would happen is they would have this bread representing the presence of God. And every week they would change it out to keep it fresh showing that God continues to be with his people and that that relationship is is fresh as well and the idea that he's always with you. And Jesus is claiming to be that bread, the bread of presence. And if you were listening to him say these things, you would most likely begin to get angry because he's claiming something a lot bigger than maybe we imagine. And he's claiming to be the Son of God. So what a difficult thing it must have been. Even they say in this passage, hey, we know his mom and dad. If you look at the passage, he says, don't we know Joseph and Mary? I mean, we saw him growing up. We saw him playing with his friends. How is he now saying he's the bread of life? This is ridiculous. It's kind of like uh, that pas- the verse that says in, in uh, John 1, uh, 46, I think it is, where it says, Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Really, Jesus? You're talking about you're the bread of life? Really, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's like a backwoods town that nobody even knows exists. And here he is claiming to be the bread of life. And so we see that this is a powerful claim. Here's the second time Jesus says, how do you get to God in verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus takes their question about the bread of life, takes their concerns and their grumblings, and what does he do? Water it down for them? Say, I'm sorry, this is a difficult thing to to grasp, so I'm going to back off a little. Is that what he does? No, he doubles down on them. Look at what he says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's claiming to be the Son of God, and he's saying, look, this is how you come. This is how you come to me. I've recently heard various pastors make claims about how vague the journey to God appears to be to them. 
how you can just kind of stumble onto God and, and there's some kind of like goodness in you that gets you to God or, or maybe has you find God on your own where there's something good in you that kind of pushes you. And the reality is that's so far from the truth. I want you to hear that clearly. The gospel is not vague. You don't stumble on it. This verse is not vague. God draws you to Himself. We can only come to Jesus through the act of God drawing us to Himself. Paul even speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You cannot stumble onto God. You cannot, you know, kind of live your life and, you know, do things that kind of get you to the point that you're in the presence of God on your own. That is false. It's a false gospel. The way that it happens is that God draws you. He uses things in your life. He uses people, but He uses the Holy Spirit to pull you into a relationship with Him. So that one of the main reasons is that you can't boast because it's not you. It's God's grace and mercy. But once again, here it is. The Jews are arguing in verse 52 to 59. We don't have time to cover it all. But they're arguing about eating Jesus' flesh. They're still hung up on this, which I would be too. What is this eating the flesh? What are you saying? But Jesus reaffirms his statement. And it's important for us to get this also. The eating that's used here, and I'm no Greek scholar. I don't claim to be. I do know people that are and that write great books and commentaries. But this eating, the word that's used is the aorist tense, which means a one-time thing. So when he's talking about being the bread of life in this passage, he's talking about a time where you are drawn to the Savior, and you trust in Jesus as your Savior. We'll look later on what that looks like, uh, where you continue to eat of the bread of life, and it's a continuous action. But here, he's saying, I'm the bread of life, meaning you taste. You see that the Lord is good. You come to Him for salvation. So we see the people struggling, but now into the passage toward the end, we see the disciples struggling too. In verse 60 to 71, we see them struggling. Let's look at that. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Talk about an understatement. (laughs) This is difficult. Verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then uh, if you should behold the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Verse 65, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You see that third instance? No one can come to him. In case you missed it the first two times, no one can come to him unless it is granted by the Father. Very clear statements here. If you notice in verse 41 and verse 61, the same word is used for grumbling. You had both the Jews 
in the synagogue grumbling the same way Jesus' believers and disciples were grumbling. That sounds familiar, huh? We often act and respond the same way as people who don't know Jesus when it comes to hard things instead of going to God for wisdom. So how does he treat them when they ask these questions and they grumble, his disciples? Does he do what I would do and maybe you would do? Maybe those of you that love to uh, kind of point people out that are having a hard time understanding things, maybe using sarcasm and things to make them feel little. He doesn't, does he? He hears their question and he answers in love and grace. He doesn't do what I would be like, man, you guys are idiots. You can't get it by now. I just fed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You can't get that? No, he has grace and mercy and says, ask him two questions. Do you take offense at this? He already knew they did, right? I love when Jesus asks questions he already knows the answer to. And then he goes, well, hey, how about this? What if you see me one day ascending to my father? How about that? Would that do it for you? For many, it wouldn't, and you'll see, for many, it didn't. So he further explains that the flesh is not dependable when it comes to understanding the gospel. I want you got to hear this clearly. It doesn't all make sense or add up in the flesh. Our attempts at trying to make it appeal to the flesh does nothing but leave us frustrated, confused, and sometimes angry at God for an unfulfilled promise that he never claimed to make. If you create God and Jesus in your own image and the gospel in your own image and your own fleshly desires to make him fit what you need and wrap him up in a nice little present with a bow on it, you're going to end up having a God that disappoints you over and over again because he doesn't meet your standard. I'm here to tell you this morning, God is not required to meet your standard. God is the standard. And you adjust according to Him. And so the reality is, sometimes life is going to be horrible. Sometimes life is going to be painful and hurtful. But can we still trust Him? I'd like to say that these disciples, not His specific disciples, but these other disciples that were looking at the rock star, following Him, right? You know, thousands more added. He got more followers, right? He got more followers and more followers because he spoke truth. But did that happen? You know, someone that preaches a false gospel, you know what they do? They get lots of followers. Prosperity gospel? Hey, more money? Bigger house? Success? No annoying children? Yeah, absolutely, right? My children aren't annoying. I'm just kidding. Uh, Yeah, all that. Give it to me. I'll get more followers that way. Jesus just, I mean, he chopped his followers off. I mean, look at what happened. Look at what it says. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. When you speak truth and you hear truth from the word of God, oftentimes you'll see people will fall away. They can't handle the truth. They can't handle what God said and what Jesus has said. And it's a question for you as well. Will you fall away as well? Jesus asked this question. Verse 67. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? 
And in one of his uh, moments of wisdom, Simon Peter, in verse 68, answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What a powerful statement. To whom shall we go? You know, even when, even when we don't understand, we still follow. Where else are we going to go? Many of you in this room right now have tried other stuff to satisfy. And you could get on this stage and say, where else are we going to go? Because I've gone there, I've gone here, I've gone here. doesn't satisfy. It leaves me wanting more. It leaves me empty. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? I hope and pray that you, as the leader of your home, a leader in your community, in your business, among your friends, in your school, can say and live a life that say, where else am I going to go? I see the words of eternal life. I've experienced the bread of life. And it's powerful and no comparison to anything else that this world has to offer. So we see these words and we're challenged to understand them. But in conclusion, I'd like us to think about a concept of what it means to feast on the bread of life. What does it mean to actually feast and taste of who he is? And what are the results of that feasting? What is the results of knowing the bread of life? Uh, Tim Keller, who is a lot smarter than I'll ever be, has some great insight on this. He talks about these words that are used for life. And the one word that's used is bios life, which is physical, which is what these people were hearing initially saying, bread, give me more, yummy, right? Bios bread. But then he says that Jesus actually uses a different word. It's called zoe. And zoe refers to ultimate life, life that is joyful, exhilarating, exciting, and amazing. And don't get me wrong, once again, I'm not up here saying that this, you follow the bread of life and you'll have good things and life will be great and everything will be wonderful. All people will love you. You have success in business and at home. No, I'm saying you have an exciting, ultimate, exhilarating life in pain, suffering, sorrow, tragedy, heartbreak. But it is an amazing ride. And as I thought about this idea, I know we, we, you can see even Lucado's quote there, what bread is to hunger Jesus claims to be for the soul. He's not offering a merely an eternal existence, but a radical and ultimate life. But unfortunately, we often spend our life pursuing the bread that this world has to offer because it seems so enticing, it's valuable, and even sometimes necessary. When Jesus continually says to you, I'm all you need. I'm all you need. I am all you need. But we look so many other places. And Jesus is trying to tell us, I'm all you need. And so when I think about this exciting, exhilarating life, I thought about my own life. Like, when do I see this? Do I see it, first of all? And if so, when do I see this? And I thought of just some practical things. 
seeing my own children begin to get it spiritually, man, that's exhilarating. A life full of meaning. Watching my junior high students begin to discover what true worship looks like. What an exciting thing. Being able to uh, see deep spiritual connections, even be made through a basketball ministry we do on Wednesday night for a simple game of basketball, seeing God do powerful things through that, through a simple game. That's amazing to me. Being able to be a a big cheerleader for my wife who, who works with foster kids and families and the people that work with them all week, being able to see the amazing things that God's doing in that community. And that's Zoe life to me. That's ultimate life. That's exhilarating. Being able to walk with my friend and my pastor through an unimaginable, sorrowful time of his life and see him face it with courage and hope and peace and joy. That is unimaginable. Exciting life. That's Zoe life. That's what comes from the bread. That's what comes from our Savior. So you've got to ask yourself, well, what makes me come alive spiritually? When do I experience this Zoe life, this life that's ridiculous? I'm not talking about some high you get because you went on a mission trip. I'm talking about everyday life. Ins and outs, ups and downs, that kind of Zoe ultimate life. Maybe you're in this room and you've never experienced it. You're like, I don't know. I don't know the bread of life. Today's the day. Today's the day to come to Jesus and say, I'm going to feast on you the bread of life that offers way more than I can ever get from this world. Offers peace and hope in a world that's screwed up. So today is your day. Maybe you need to taste the bread of life today. But for most of us in here, possibly, we've had that initial tasting, but maybe for us, the tasting has gone dry. Maybe, unfortunately, we've thought that we've tasted once and that was enough. And that was good. Now we're good. We've trusted Jesus and we're good. And the reality is that's just the beginning Some of you need to be called back to that Zoe life. That ultimate, exciting, exhilarating, tough, horrible, evil, difficult life. All wrapped up in one. Let's pray. Dear God, we uh, come before you. Possibly convicted of our need for you, just like Peter was. Where are we going to go? you have the words of eternal life. God, I pray that even right now as we sit in our seats, Lord, that we will take the time to confess of living the bios life, living the life that is just temporary and temporal here on earth, getting caught up in the busyness of stuff and schedules and things and not letting you give us Zoe life, ultimate amazing life. And as we get ready for communion, I I just ask that all of us in here just take time to pray and prepare our hearts to confess where we need to confess, 
to get things right before God. Maybe someone in here that doesn't know Jesus. Take the time right now in your seat to recognize that He is the bread of life. Everything this world has to offer outside of Jesus is empty. Empty. 